Hello, Bayleaf. Happy Memorial Day weekend. My name is Patrick Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at Bayleaf, and, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to worship with you today through the preaching of God's Word. So take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, and we will be in both chapters 8 and 9 this morning. The title of the message is A Spiritual Rebuilding. A Spiritual Rebuilding. I want you to imagine yourself this morning driving down the road in your car. You're enjoying a beautiful day, the weather's great, you've got the music on, you're, you're loving life. But then you hear a sound in your car. You think your ears are playing tricks on you, so you turn the radio knob down, and in fact, there is a sound coming from your car. Many of you have been in a situation like this before, but the way that we respond in this situation varies amongst us. For some of us, we immediately say, we need to get this fixed. We take it to someone that we trust, we have them look it over, we know that it's going to cost us time, it's going to cost us maybe a lot of money, but we want the peace of mind knowing that the problem has been dealt with. But for many of us, I'm throwing myself in this category, we kind of act like it never happened. We just keep driving and we say, oh, well, my car always makes weird noises. It's an old car. It can't be that big of a deal. I don't want to spend the time. I don't have time today. I definitely don't have the money in case it's a huge expense, so we'll just put it off until tomorrow. But what happens is after a few days, maybe even a week of driving around with the, the sound in our cars, we get used to it, and we forget it's even there. And then later on down the road is when we run into big trouble because we didn't deal with it right then and right there. When we hear these two scenarios, we might wonder, why would we ever choose scenario two? If we know that there's a problem, why would we not deal with it right then and right there? Today, we are bringing closure to our journey through the Old Testament in our movement series. And we have been examining how the Spirit of God is working in the life of His people to advance His kingdom. And if you remember, all the way back when we started this series, we started in the book of Zechariah. And we looked at Zechariah chapter 4, and the prophet Zechariah spoke the words of God to a man named Zerubbabel. And he told Zerubbabel three things. He said that this would not be accomplished, the task of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, by his strength or by man's might, but by the Spirit of God. That it would be a day of small beginnings, but don't despise the day of small things. And that God was going to use unlikely people to accomplish the task of rebuilding the city. Namely, using Zerubbabel and the priest Jeshua to accomplish this task. And as we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9 this morning, we find that the temple has been rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem have been restored. God did what he said he was going to do. The Spirit has been at work in the life of his people, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But there's a problem. 
It's a lingering problem, one that has not been dealt with, and it has to do with the people of God. Within the people of God, they have hearts that are sinful and rebellious against God, and they have put off dealing with this sin for days, weeks, months, years. Yes, the Spirit of God was working in his people to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but now the Spirit wanted to do a work of spiritual rebuilding in his people. I wonder if you're here today and you feel like you might be in a similar place. You've been a Christian for many, many years, but you felt like lately it's just been like going through the motions. You felt like you haven't encountered God in months, maybe even years. You feel spiritually dry. You have no joy. You know that there's sin in your life that you haven't dealt with. You haven't confessed it. But you know that having to deal with all of those things is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you the time and the energy and and dealing with it before a holy God. But instead of dealing with it, instead of undergoing a spiritual rebuilding, you would rather continue to go through the motions and put it off until tomorrow. And so, Bailey, my prayer for us this morning is that we wouldn't keep putting off till tomorrow what needs to be dealt with today. That the Spirit of God wants to do a spiritual rebuilding of his people today. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9, we will see that upon encountering God through the Scriptures, the Spirit produces within us hearts of joyful worship and humble confession. Upon encountering God through the scriptures, the Spirit produces within us hearts of joyful worship and humble confession. We're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 4 describes those who were standing with Ezra on the platform. Jump down to verse 5. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen! Amen! Then they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7 again describes the names of these Levites who were standing with Ezra. Verse 8. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understood what was read. Upon encountering God through the scriptures, the Spirit produces within us hearts of joyful worship and humble confession. And in these first verses, we see that there is a people expecting to encounter God. They have gathered for a time of corporate worship, 
prepared and expecting to meet with God. They were celebrating in the seventh month a holiday that God had commanded them to celebrate, which was the festival of shelters. And in Deuteronomy 31, God commands the people that during this festival, the people are commanded to to gather and read aloud the law so that they might listen and learn to fear him and teach their children to follow the Lord. And so that is what the people in Nehemiah 8 are doing. They have gathered together and asked Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which is also known as the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These people are desperately wanting to encounter God through the reading of the scriptures. Have you ever intensely had a craving for something? You can't get it off your mind. A few years ago when I was uh, on a mission trip in Kenya with bay leaf, I learned that when you're in Kenya, you kind of get to eat the exact same thing every single day. Uh, For lunch and for dinner, you get some chicken and you get some rice, and if you're lucky, you get some vegetables. And so after a week of serving, uh, I was getting tired of eating chicken and rice. And I remembered that the hotel that we would stay at before we flew back home had a restaurant in it. And at that restaurant, they served cheeseburgers. And so that first week, I was eating the chicken and rice, like, okay, this is pretty good. Moving into week two, I really started to think about that cheeseburger. I started to crave it. I started to think about it with great anticipation. I wanted a change of taste. I wanted something different. Is that how we, the people of God, approach the corporate gathering of worship? Are we hungering and thirsting to meet with God, to encounter God through the preaching and teaching of His Word? As we move throughout our week day by day, are we looking forward to the weekend where we get to gather with our church family and we anticipate God speaking to us? This isn't a hunger that we can manufacture. It's one that we have to pray, and God, give us this hunger. Give us this desire for you, for your word. Can we, with the people in the book of Nehemiah, say, bring us the book. We want to encounter you, God. They have a hunger for the word. In verse 2, we read that the men, women, and all who could listen with understanding gathered for this time of corporate worship. No one was excluded. People of all ages, if you could listen with understanding, you were, were there for worship. As we look back in history at moments of revival, moments when God sparked a movement in and among his people, there's often a common denominator found in many of these movements, and it's that God begins his work in the lives of of young people, of young generations. In 1806, five college students gathered to pray about how they could reach the lost people in the continent of Asia. And in this prayer gathering, known as the Haystack Revival or the Haystack Meeting, a board of, of missions was created so that they could send missionaries to the continent of Asia to tell people about Jesus. And one of these future missionaries that would go out from this board was Adoniram Judson, who was the first American missionary to the nation of Burma. 
I want to take a minute and speak directly to students in this room, the young people in this room, middle schoolers, elementary school, middle school, high school, college students. Listen, often what you're told in the church is you're the future generation of the church. When you get older, God's going to use you in great and powerful ways. I want to tell you this morning that God wants to use you right now. God wants to do a work in and among the young people, the young generations, all who had ears to hear gathered to meet with God. God has a word for you, young people, young students. God wants you to seek him with your whole heart, your whole life. He wants you to say, God, you're the only thing I want and want to pursue after. Some of the sweetest moments of my short time in ministry have been when I see a student it all clicks for them. The light bulb goes off and they say, there is no one I want to seek and run after rather than Jesus. When God gets a hold of a young person, watch out, because God is going to move. And so I pray, students, if you're here this morning, God has a word for you. God wants to change you. He wants to rebuild you. And I, I, I plead to the parents, the grandparents, the adults in the room, let's not discount the work that God can do in and among our younger generations. Let's not wait till they get older. Let's say, God, move with them now. Move within our young people. Verse 3 tells us that the people listened attentively to the book of the law. From daybreak until noon, the people listened to the reading of the scriptures. You realize that's five to six hours of listening to the scripture being read? I mean, when is the last time that any of us have done anything for five to six hours at a time? We don't have that kind of attention span. These people here are locked in. They're focused. They're saying, we have to meet with God. We have to encounter God through the scriptures you got to remember the people are feeling the weight and the conviction of their sin. They realize that if they miss a single line from the scriptures, a single line, a single word, that it could mean it's a matter of life and death. They are hanging on the words of the scriptures. Is that how we approach the time of corporate worship with our church family? Are we locked in? Are we focused on what God has for us in his word? Or are we daydreaming about what happened last week? What's on our schedule this upcoming week? Are we on our phone, checking our email, sending a text, watching a video? Or are we wanting to meet with God, expecting to hear from God through the scriptures? Church, this doesn't happen by accident. We have to prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us. We have to come ready to meet with God. We need to pray for attentive ears. But then lastly, we see in verse 6 that when Ezra reads the book of the law, the people say, Amen. And then the Levites begin to explain to them the words that were just read. They explain it. And the people receive this teaching. They receive it gladly. They have a teachable attitude. They want to grow. They want to learn. And I wonder if we have this same teachable attitude, this same humble heart that's hungering to be taught the word of God. 
Or do we approach the teaching and preaching of God's word or our time in Sunday school with our arms crossed saying, I've already heard this story. I already know this passage of scripture. I know all the church answers already. I know what the Bible has to say for me. If we approach the scriptures with pride and arrogance, God's not going to speak to us through the scriptures. But when we come with humble hearts, attentive ears, a teachable attitude, God is going to speak. His spirit is going to work. But are we prepared? We see here that the spirit has given these people a hunger for the word, attentive ears, a teachable attitude, and it leads to an encounter with God through the scriptures. But now the Spirit wants to do something else. He wants to produce within them hearts of joyful worship and humble confession. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich. Drink what is sweet. And send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that that were explained to them. The Spirit of God is producing within His people hearts of joyful worship. But as we were reading that, you might have noticed that their initial response to the reading of God's Word was weeping. They fall on their face and they're weeping before God. They have conviction of their sin in light of who God is. And then the leaders and the teachers say, it's not time to grieve. It's not time to weep. It's time to party. It's time to celebrate. It's time to have hearts of joyful worship. Isn't that kind of strange, don't you think? If the Spirit of God's moving in such a way to bring about the conviction of sin upon his people, but then all of a sudden we're told, no, don't, don't weep, don't grieve. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. We have to remember that these people are in the midst of celebrating a holiday called the Festival of Shelters. And this festival was a, a time to commemorate and to remember how God had worked in his people. How God had led them out of Egypt, out of slavery. How God had faithfully provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years. How God had led them into the promised land just like he said he would when he spoke to Abraham. This was a celebration of God's faithfulness and God's mercy. And they are told not to grieve because the joy of the Lord is their strength. This encounter with God was meant to lead them to a place of rejoicing, of joy, of celebration, because God's joy is their strength. Church, God's joy is your strength. 
God's delight is in the salvation of his people. Jesus in John 15 says these words. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Life in Jesus leads to complete joy. Salvation in Jesus is an invitation to enter into complete joy. But for many of us, including myself, we don't live with joy. Joy escapes us. It seems elusive. We say, God, how can I have joy when I'm living in the midst of all this suffering? When things aren't going the way that I'd like them to go, how can I have joy? I think that for many of us, maybe the reason why we don't live with joy is because we haven't encountered God in a really long time. We haven't encountered him. We haven't fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of our sin and been reminded of who we are in light of who God is. And the purpose of that is to lead us to joy, but we refuse to do that. We put it off until tomorrow. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life. Church, God loves you. God loves you. He loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to live the life that we could not live. Oh, the mercy of God. Jesus died the death that we deserve because of our sin, the grace of God. Jesus rose and conquered sin and death, the power of God. And now Jesus invites you and invites me into life with him to have this complete joy. The love of God. The good news of the gospel is meant to produce within us hearts of joyful worship so that we can delight in God. The Spirit is wanting to produce within us this heart of joyful worship. But he's not finished yet. The Spirit also wants to produce within his people hearts of humble confession. Hearts of humble confession. Proverbs 28.13 says this, The one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nehemiah 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their head. The time for joyful worship had ended. It was now a time for them to corporately gather and confess their sins. This picture of sackcloth and ashes was one of humility. They were preparing to cry out, God, have mercy on us. It's similar to how Moses responded when he encountered God in Exodus 34. 
God passes by Moses and says this, The Lord, the Lord is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now listen to what Moses does. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. Then he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. When Moses encounters God, his response is falling on the ground and saying, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on your people. The people here in Nehemiah are gathered, crying out, God, have mercy on us. It's the same thing in 2 Chronicles 7, when God speaks to Solomon and says, If my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. The people of God are gathering to confess their sins. And I think it's important to know and make this clear because often when we come to a text like this, our mind goes to, well, this is a prayer of confession for the people that don't know God. We're confessing the sins of the pagan nations down the street. But no, here in Scripture, when the people of God are gathering together in Nehemiah, when Moses is crying out before God, when Solomon is crying out on behalf of his people, these are God's people confessing their sin against God. Their own sin against God. This prayer of confession in Nehemiah 9, it begins by tracing a storyline of the Old Testament. It starts with creation, moving to the calling on Abram's life, into the exodus out of Egypt, into the time of the wilderness, and then in the conquest of the promised land. And we've touched on each of these stories during our movement series. So we're going to focus our attention on the back half of this prayer, starting in verse 26. And so I encourage you to go back and read this whole prayer of confession at some point this week. But this This prayer, starting in verse 26, is dealing with Israel's history in the period of the judges, the kings, and the prophets. And the people gathered here are remembering, they're confessing the sins of their forefathers. Let's pick up in verse 26. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly 
and would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks, and would not obey. You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Do you see the cycle of this prayer? These people gathering are confessing the sins of their forefathers. And the cycle is that God is good. But then the people of God reject his goodness and go the opposite way. They rebel against his word. They dismiss his commands and they run their own direction. And God hands them over to judgment. But then because of his love and his mercy and his grace and his compassion and his patience, he draws them back to himself. He draws them back. And these people here in Nehemiah 8, they're they're saying, God, if you don't pour out your mercy, just like you poured out your mercy upon our forefathers, upon our ancestors, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. And then it becomes an ownership of their own sin. Look at verse 33. They say, you are righteous, God, concerning all that has happened to us. Because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. The people of God own their sin. They confess their sin. They say, God, we need that same mercy that you showed to our forefathers, that you showed to our ancestors. And as we read through that prayer of confession, And we heard that the people flung God's law behind their back, that they acted arrogantly, that they disregarded it, that they disobeyed it. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds like me. Sounds like you. It sounds like the people of God rejecting God's goodness and going their own way. you got to remember they're listening to the first five books of the law. They're hearing Moses' words, uh, God's words to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Bailey, we the people of God have been given God's commands and we've turned away from them. The Lord says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And what do we do? We work and we work and we work and we never stop working. We worship our vocation and we never stop to rest and to think about the goodness of God and remember his goodness towards his people. God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, but what do we do? We spend hours of our day scrolling and posting nonsense on social media when we haven't shared the gospel with someone for months. We don't even think about the billions of people in our world that have never even heard the name of Jesus. God has told us, thou shalt not commit adultery, but the people of God have turned a blind eye to sexual immorality. We have excused lust. 
We have excused addictions to pornography. We have excused cheating on our spouses. The people of God have been commanded not to lie and be dishonest, but yet we have made it common practice in the church to lie, to be deceitful, to slander our neighbor who sits down the pew from us on Sunday morning. We grumble and complain against people and against God. God, have mercy on us. God, have mercy on us. We need your mercy, God. We have sinned against the holy God. We have turned away from him and gone our own direction. Just like the people in Nehemiah crying out for the mercy of God. Today, church, we need to cry out for this mercy. And thankfully, this is not the end of the story. Because God and his goodness has made a way for us to be forgiven of sin. In the moment of of Christ's crucifixion, we, we see a perfect picture of both judgment and mercy. God is pouring out his judgment upon his son Jesus on the cross. Jesus is bearing the wrath of the Father. And simultaneously, through the blood spill of Jesus, we are receiving mercy. We are receiving forgiveness. It's the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness you have an opportunity to be saved from your sin, to receive this mercy that the people are crying out for this morning. We do not have to live in our sin, but we can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Spirit of God wants to do a work of spiritual rebuilding in the life of his people. But the question is, are we going to keep putting it off until tomorrow or are we going to say yes to what the Spirit wants to do in us today? Some of you have never encountered God in your life. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And today, the Spirit is saying, turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus alone for your salvation. Don't put it off till tomorrow. It's not promised. Some of you have been going through the motions and you haven't encountered God in quite a long time and, and God's saying, fall on your face before me. Encounter me through the word. Open up the scriptures and read them. Others of you are looking for joy and, and, and God says, ask me for joy. I want to give it to you. I want to give you that complete joy. Others of you have sin in your life you know that you have wronged God. You know that you have disregarded his commands. John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today is the day. Confess those sins. Confess to God. If you've wronged a person, confess to that person that you've wronged them. There is freedom in forgiveness. There is joy in confession. Confess your sins before God. The Spirit of God wants to do a work of spiritual rebuilding, and I pray that we, the people of God, would say yes to that today. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we need your mercy. Apart from your mercy, we are dead in our sins, and we have no hope. We deserve death and hell and separation from you, but in your great love, O oh God, 
You have made a way for us to be saved from our sins. And so I pray during this time of response, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in the life of your people, drawing us back to yourself, Lord, healing our wounds, helping us to remember the good and glorious news of the gospel. God, thank you for the way that you love us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we sing, I I encourage you to respond to how God wants you to respond this morning. I'll be at the front. Um, The altar's open to pray. Do it today. Let's respond together. Please stand. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone we'll needs forgiveness. All right, I'll... I'm a savior.